Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. You can stay tuned to uh, more instructions on social media if you want to do a tribute, as uh, you just saw, for our celebration of womanhood. So here we are again, missing the opportunity to having to gather together personally on a Sunday. And uh, as you've already heard Jordan say a a couple times, uh, many of you uh, out there need to connect in real life. And so... Uh, I have to say it again, we are here for you, and contrary to popular opinion, we can't read minds. So uh, please take the time via the chat, um, email, text. Uh, The numbers are always coming up on the screens, and we will follow up with you as soon as we possibly can. And uh, uh, just to let you know, uh, we're, we're moving through it, and we'll get through it. Now, if you're tuning in for the first time, we're continuing in our series on the Minor Prophets, and this week we're looking at the eighth prophet of the twelve. And it's another strange name, Habakkuk, Habakkuk, Chewbacca. I I think Chewbacca. Actually, it's Habakkuk. And uh, his name may sound strange, but the book considers a number of questions that we always commonly ask. And I think um, you're going to find some real personal reflection here, like, How am I going to make it through this season or this time? How more appropriate than really looking at this book today? And I think it's fair to say that we all go through some sort of season in our lives where things seem to be falling apart all around us. They're not going uh, according to plan and things on the horizon don't look better anytime soon or like a lockdown. So what do you do when you've prayed to God and you don't get the answer or you don't like the answer you received. You've applied for university of your dreams, and the response is no. You've interviewed for a new job, and they found somebody else more qualified. Or you ask God for healing, and the doctor says the chemo didn't work. You prayed to find a spouse, and after all these years, they have not yet found you. You asked her to marry you, and she said no. You sunk your life savings into a new business only to see it fail within the year. You moved across the country to take a new job, but that didn't work out. Now you're unemployed again. You never intended to end up divorced, but here you are. You planned on having children, but it isn't happening for some reason. You volunteered to serve in an organization. They said they'd get back to you, but evidently they've lost your phone number. You know, I think we've all been there, at least most of us, and many times, because simply that's just the way that life is. You have your dreams, you make your plans, you sincerely uh, seek to do God's will. I think many believers are like that. You pray, and then the answer comes, and it's not what you've wanted. So what do you do then? I think if we live long enough, we all discover that God's plan and our plans are often not the same. And, and I think we know that as believers, we should be praying, your will be done. And I think most of us actually do, but it still jolts the spirit when we discover that God has a completely different plan in mind. And that's Habakkuk. So what we're going to do is we're going to ask five simple questions. Who wrote the book? Where are we in history? Why is this book important? What's the main message? And how do I apply it to my life? So let's jump right in. Who wrote the book? 
Well, to be honest, we really don't know too much about the historical setting for Habakkuk, but we, we know a little about the prophet himself. Again, his name, Habakkuk, it's derived from the Hebrew word, which is for embrace or embracer. And it's not in the romantic sense, but in a comforting sense. And this is supposed to be probably part of the aspect of the book. Now, the text provides no background. Um, it provides no real historical information or genealogical data for this guy named Habakkuk. But what we do know is that he demonstrates a familiarity with the temple practices. And we see that in chapter 2, verse 20. There's also this assumption uh, is based on the very last sentence in chapter 3, verse 19, where he ends it saying, for the choir director on my stringed instruments. So Habakkuk may be a priest or a professional prophet. Uh, he could have been trained in the law of Moses at a prof uh, prophetic school, which was this institution that educated prophets that popped up um, after the days of Samuel. We can read it in 1 Samuel and 2 Kings. And although Habakkuk is called a prophet, his book does not record warnings to the people so much as it records his conversation with God. So where are we in history? Figuring out the date, uh, in this book is a little bit easier than dating most books. Uh, it appears that the temple was still standing. Habakkuk spoke often about this imminent Babylonian invasion in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. What we do know is that the total destruction of Judah's capital city, which was Jerusalem, occurred in 586 B.C. And so the way that Habakkuk describes Judah indicates a low time in their history. Um, if dating is to remain close to the Babylonian invasion, it is quite possible that he was prophesying in the first five years of Jehoiakim's reign, which was about 609 to 598 BC. And he was a king who led his people into evil. He was just a, he was just a bad guy. And so what we see is here we have Habakkuk before the destruction of Jerusalem, contemporary of Jeremiah, of Nahum, and of Zephaniah. So why is this so important? I think Habakkuk provides us one of the most remarkable uh, sections of Scripture. It contains this dialogue between Habakkuk and God. Those first two chapters, that's really what it's all about. Habakkuk initiates this conversation based on his distress about God's inaction. God's not doing anything. And he wants to see God do something more, particularly in the area of justice for evildoers. And so this book pictures a frustrated prophet, much like Jonah. Though Habakkuk channels his frustrations into a, a bit like Jonah ran, but Habakkuk prays. He eventually praises God rather than trying to run from him as Jonah did. So what's the main message? Well, the northern kingdom had already been carried away into exile. And the southern kingdom of Judah had endured this series of horrible kings. Drought had devastated the land to the point that the fields actually produced little to no fruit. And their cattle and... Uh, had either all starved to death or had been stolen. And so Habakkuk in chapter 3, verse 17, actually describes this situation. And basically, it reads like every country music song when you look at it. My wife left me, I lost my job, my truck broke down, and my dog died. This is what Habakkuk is sort of saying. But here's the point. The, the region of Judah was undergoing this starvation-level social collapse. So it was almost like Europe after World War II. 
In addition to that, the Babylonians presented this looming threat and and God had told Habakkuk and the other prophets that Babylon would soon invade the southern kingdom, destroy it, carry away the survivors as captives. And uh, Habakkuk says, God, how are we going to make it through? How are we going to do this? And he's unhappy because to Habakkuk, God seems so indifferent. And so now what we have here is a Q&A between God and Habakkuk. And see, Habakkuk seems to function as a prophet to God on behalf of a nation, rather than the traditional prophet who would go to the people on behalf of God. And so like Job, Habakkuk questions God, and he, he questions God's way of interaction with humanity. And he seems intent on clarifying his message with God and then bringing it to Judah, the nation. I look at this and I read through this and I, I wonder if Habakkuk's day is somewhat similar to even our own. You know, a time when you could stand back and look and say everything is going wrong. He lived in a time where in the nation there was great corruption and distress. The land is filled with violence and hatred and outbreaks of evil. I almost wonder if the only thing that Habakkuk didn't have that we do is a pandemic. And again, his distress, his bother is reflected in the opening phrases of the book. And he poses that first question. And he says, how long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteousness so that justice is perverted. How does that sound like today? He cries help, but nobody hears. And here is this great problem of unanswered prayer. Here is a man who's disturbed about what's going on in his nation. He sees everything going wrong. The people are living in wickedness. There is unrest. There is violence. There is injustice. There is opposition and oppression throughout all the land. And those who have the responsibility to actually correct this do nothing about it. And then the whole matter is brought up before the courts, and the courts, we find out, are also corrupt. And so Habakkuk is greatly troubled. He's been praying about this problem, but he doesn't get any answer, and so he cries out in confusion. Starting in verse 5 of chapter 1, God begins to respond, and his response basically comes in four different components. And the amazing thing about this prophecy is that it's a dialogue. It's a dialogue between a man and God. This is the mirror of the minor prophet. We should be able to see ourselves here. This is why this book is so up to date. See, every one of us, I believe, is named Habakkuk. And each of us faces this problem from time to time that he was going through. And so God answers first in verse 5. He says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed for I'm going to do something in your day that you would not believe even if you were told. In other words, what God is saying to Habakkuk's questions is, okay, I've been answering your prayer, Habakkuk. You know, you accuse me of silence, but I haven't been silenced. You know, you just don't know how to recognize my answer. I've been answering But the answer is so different than what you expect that you're not even going to recognize it or believe it when I tell you. 
And then God continues his answer in verses 6 to 11. God says he's preparing to raise up the Babylonians. God says, look at I'm behind this. You know, these Babylonians, he basically calls them strange people. They're bitter, they're hostile, they're ruthless, they're cold-blooded. They're going to be as powerful as any nation on earth that has ever been. They're going to sweep in through the lands. They're going to conquer everything. It's going to look like absolutely nothing can stop them. And these people will not have any God at the center of their life. And they believe that their own might is their God. They trust in their own strength, Habakkuk. And I am behind the rise of these people. And this is the answer to your prayer. Now, let's be honest, that's astounding, right? You know, and evidently, Habakkuk doesn't know what to make of this response. And there's, there's actually a moment of silence there in the scriptures where he has to reflect on what he just heard from God. And if he thought he had a problem when he started, he, he really has a problem now. And this is what bothers many people when they look at what's happening in the world. You know, the thing that has threatened the faith of many has, has been the problem of history. You know, why does God allow things to happen the way they do, right? Why does he permit such terrible events to occur throughout human history at any point in time? And it's, Habakkuk's question is actually an age-old problem. It's not nothing new. It's an age, you know... It, the world often doesn't seem like it's being ruled by a good, all-wise, all-powerful God. Philosophers call this the problem of evil. They trace the question all the way back to a 5th century B.C. Greek philosopher named Epicurus. He basically said this. He said that if God is really all-powerful, he could stop all evil. And if he was really loving... He would want to stop it all. And so the fact that pain and suffering and injustice run rampant on the earth means then that either God is not all-powerful or good, right? So basically what he's saying is if, if he's good, he would. If he could, he should. Since he doesn't, that means he isn't. This is what Epicurus is saying. And he concludes that either there is no God or it's not the God that Christians claim. And as you know, Epicurus wasn't the last to grapple with this issue, and I'm pretty sure that most of us watching have struggled with struggle, right? Uh, or we're, we will struggle, or we are currently struggle with the mental anguish of living life in a fallen world. We're not asking new questions. And the fact of the matter is, as we look at the scriptures, we see that people from faith, uh, uh, people of faith from the very beginning have struggled with this. Habakkuk offers a comeback in, in, you know, basically chapter one, chapter two, before God gives his final reply in the rest of chapter two. Chapter two, verse four, God responds. He says, see, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by faithfulness. This, is a reply, this reply actually contains a line that will be quoted three times in the New Testament. In Galatians 3, in Romans 1, and Hebrews 10. This is the phrase that lit a fire under a German monk named Martin Luther. And the line that will become, to known, become known to many as the Reformation verse. 
So Martin Luther was this, this Catholic monk who hated the idea of the righteousness of God. He just did. And Luther lived in the dread of God. And he knew that despite all his efforts as a student, as a monk, he was not righteous enough. He could never stand before God. And Luther's transformation from hating the righteousness of God to loving it, from, you know, he described it as living in terror because his works were just insufficient to a joy and freedom that came when he understood that he was saved by faith alone. And all this dates back to his meditation on one verse of scripture. And it's a verse that originally shows up here in Habakkuk 2. And once Luther understood this verse, as it was quoted in Romans 1.17, he said this, he says, I felt as if I was entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous will live by faith, not by circumstance, not by observations, not by reasoning, but by faith in what God has said will happen. And God assured Habakkuk that everything was under control. And God assured Habakkuk, listen, you just need to trust me. And in the same way, we read this, God encourages us to trust him. He has a plan for his children. And if you're going to walk with him in this world, it will have to be by faith. Which means you and I have to acknowledge that there are going to be a number of things that we will probably not fully see or understand. That's part of faith. The third part of his answer is found in 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And God is saying that he is ultimately in control. And sometimes God's way will make no sense to us. And every thoughtful person wrestles with, with this at some point. We do. Eventually we are forced back on the fact that he's God and we are not. That God is sovereign and that we are not sovereign. And every mistake we make because, you know, comes from, because we forget this basic fact. We're not sovereign. We're not in control. And it's actually very good for us to remember even something from Psalms 115. Our God is in heaven, and he does whatever pleases him. There's just that surrender to the Almighty. Fourth, God gives Habakkuk a vision of himself seated on a throne, high on a throne above, you know. And this picture is a picture of majesty, and holiness. Basically, God is saying, if I'm still on my throne, you can trust me, especially with unanswered questions. It may look like out of control, but I got it in control. And then finally, in chapter 3, we find that Habakkuk's response to all of God's responding has taken place. So now we come to the big question of how do we apply this to our lives? The shape of Habakkuk's book is supposed to teach us something. And it shows us what the internal growth of faith in our hearts look like. You know, several portions of the Old Testament are actually like this. And so rather than simply telling us what God says, the, the writer here, he opens up his heart and he lets us learn from his own personal faith struggle. Several of the Psalms are like this. The book of Job is also this way. The book of Jonah, you know, the story of one of the prophets here that we've gone through already is struggling to love like God loves. And now here we have another, the eighth prophet. He's in the same place. And so what we can say is that Habakkuk was written for you. And this book at times is uncomfortably candid. 
He'll say things, and, and some people wonder, can, can you really say that to God? <laughs> you know, get away with it? And, and I think the fact of the matter is that we can learn a lesson right off the bat here is that God is okay with our struggles. He's okay with our questions. He can handle them. He's okay with our reasoning. And when Habakkuk himself questions God, God doesn't snap back at him. How dare thou talketh to me if that way, thou worm Habakkuk? No. He actually, it appears to welcome Habakkuk's questions. It's as if God is wanting Habakkuk to understand the process. And you got to think about it this way as well. God even saw fit to put this book in the Bible. Why? So that we can learn from it. Not ignore it, but we can learn from it. And so this idea of doubt, I believe, is one of God's most common tools to drive us deeper into faith. And faith that hasn't been tested with doubt is shallow and fragile. God wants to grow faith in us. He wants to strengthen faith in us. And to some degree, doubt is part of that process. So God can handle our questions. You know, where is God when things aren't going the way we expect them as faithful followers of Jesus? You know, the the faithful professional wonders why they lost their job when they did everything right, right? A new mother agonizes over the inability to get a good night's sleep so she can at least have a decent morning. Maybe the Christian student struggles with being ridiculed by classmates and critically graded by an antagonistic professor. Maybe you're facing a bad medical diagnosis or a crumbling marriage or financial difficulty. Or maybe a boyfriend of many years and you just broke up and you have no prospects for the future. And, I, you know, again, I can go on and on and on. But Habakkuk looked around him and he saw nothing but violence. He saw nothing but injustice and he saw nothing but oppression. And he calls out to God for help. And to him, in his moment, it appeared that God was silent. And I think Habakkuk asked God the kind of question that many of us have thought. You know, why do you force me to look at this stuff? Why do you, why, why do you, you know, why do I see trouble day after day? Like, where are you, God? And I think we've all seen evidence of evil even in our own lives. We're all touched by it. We all bear scars at various stages of healing, however you want to describe it. We're surrounded by evil. It's almost as if we're trapped into dark prison cells of our own making. And when you think about it, we can even go a step further, and we're often downtrodden by our own personal poor choices in this fallen world in which we live. And so I can stand outside and I can say, look, and evil persists, and God seems inactive. Or at least that's the perception Habakkuk has at the beginning of his book. Let me get a little philosophical with you for a moment. Is it possible for a good God to allow something painful when he could stop it? I personally love military history. I'm usually fixated. So I'm going to give you a military illustration. So imagine with me a commando in World War II with the Allies. He's dropped behind enemy lines. He's given an assignment. The assignment is, you're going to pose as a German officer. We're going to put you behind enemy lines. We want you to get into this concentration camp, and we want you to destroy those gas chambers. You're going to blow them up. So, 
Commando drops in. He mingles with the other officers. And now he sees a soldier preparing to execute a prisoner. Now, this is an evil that he could stop by simply shooting the soldier, right? Like, oh, how do you know? But he could stop it, but what's the cost? He might save one person, but his mission is there to save many. That's the mission. So more lives would be lost in the long run if he prevents an individual death, but doesn't stop the gas chambers from destroying thousands more. So is it possible for a good person to allow something evil, even though he can stop it? Is it possible that we might allow a lesser evil to prevent even a greater one? Okay, let's bring it to more reality-based. Let's bring it closer to home. I have a son, actually two, who are not fond of needles. Now, when we went into the doctor's office, I remember to update vaccines at one point in time, the doctor asked me to hold my boy on my lap as he stuck the needle into his arm or thigh. I'm thinking thigh, but it could have been arm, I'm not sure. Doesn't matter. Anyway, one of my sons let out a scream that could have woken the dead. That's, I kid you not. And what was worse, though, was how frantically he actually looked around the room searching for help. Even though he was on my lap, his eyes found mine. It was very clear that he, you know, uh, he expected me to do something to stop this cruel doctor. But there I sat. I wasn't st- stopping the doctor, but I was actually helping the doctor by restraining my son. And I know he couldn't understand why the one whom he thought loved him, me, was not helping him. And he couldn't perceive that what I was doing um, was because that I loved him. He couldn't understand that. I think at that point in time, my kid probably felt betrayed and abandoned. But my point is this. Is it possible for a good person to allow something painful to happen if they know something better will come out of it? It's also possible that a lot of the pain that God allows us to go through on earth might be like that as well. Just as those painful shots produced a healthier life in my sons, might it be that our pain in life, and you think about it, will yield a greater and happier eternity? You could sit there and say, well, I can't see any good coming out of this. Well, that's just because you can't see it doesn't mean it isn't happening. I want you to think about it this way. I, I, I had this illustration because it works so well when there's a building packed with people. You know, imagine we're doing church. Imagine, remember, well, you know, whatever that is anymore. I'm not quite sure, you know. Um, but imagine we're doing church normally. There's people seated in here. And if I ask this question to everybody seated in the room, is there an elephant in the auditorium here? You will answer my question with a reasonable amount of confidence because you can't see one, probably. And if you can't see it, this elephant in the room, it's reasonable to conclude that it's not there. Am I not correct? Of course I am. But if I do say to you, if there are, are there any lice in the building here in which you are sitting? Lice, right? 
And if you take a look around and you say no, just because you can't see one, I actually think that that confidence that you have now is unwarranted. The person right in front of you or the person behind you or the person next to you could actually have a head full of them. And how many of you have touched your head right now? And by the way, don't scratch because you'll look very suspicious to sitting next to you and the person on the couch. And the point is this, understanding all the purposes of an all-wise God might be more like locating fleas than spotting elephants. And faith trusts God with that. Is God on his throne? And I think that, that's the fundamental question that we have to answer. Which leads us to Habakkuk's great statement of faith, which is, as I said, one of the greatest in all the Bible. The righteous person will live by his faithfulness. And ultimately, we have to, we have to look at how Habakkuk concludes. He says, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. And yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes in the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no fruit, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength, and he makes my feet like the feet of the deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. And then the final sentence for the director of music on my stringed instruments. What we see here is that Habakkuk now boldly proclaims his faith in God. He doesn't really understand his plan, but he does trust in him. And when the world looks grim, the righteous will live by faith. When we do not see the answer or the deliverance, the righteous will live by faith. And that's where we need to trust the Lord. Now, for those of you who feel like God is nowhere to be found, for those of you who feel that maybe your situation is actually hopeless, and for those of you who are uh, angry or worse, even numb, my desire is that you would find hope today. Not a pep talk, but real hope from Habakkuk. It begins in verse 2 of chapter 3. It says, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day, in our time. Make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. And then in the next 15 verses, Habakkuk is going to recount the Exodus in poetic languages. In which the Old Testament, it's ultimate picture of salvation when you think about it. And this is going to remind him of several things. And uh, the first in reality, and, and, and this is really important but hard to grasp, is that we're not innocent people suffering. You see, in, in Exodus, God was delivering his people from slavery. And in their captivity in Egypt was a picture of this self-imposed slavery of sin. God didn't create us to suffer. We as a race put that on ourselves, as the human race, by rejecting God. And a rebellion all of us have participated in. Now let me be very clear here. I'm not saying that particular bad things in your life are happening um, <clears throat> directly because you sinned as if God is paying you back directly for something that you previously did. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that suffering in general exists in the world because the human race sinned. 
something in which we have all participated in, willingly or not, and which means that none of us can really point our finger at God and say, I don't deserve any of this. Our sin warranted eternal death. So the fact that we woke up this morning, that we experienced somewhat some sunshine on our faces and breath in our lungs is actually God's mercy. Theologian R.C. Sproul was once asked, why do bad things happen to good people? He said this, well, when I meet a good people, I'll let you know. See, our culture says we're all good. Scripture says otherwise. When Habakkuk reflects on the Exodus, it reminds him that God is not short on any power. Um, uh, God manipulated the most powerful nations at will. He controls the sun, the moon. He split the oceans. He's not limited by anything, right? Also, God has not given up on us. He delivered his people for a purpose. He's not going to let that, uh, that, that purpose die ever. So what is our takeaway this morning? Our takeaway, number one, is first that hope, hope itself, can exist alongside grief. I heard my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones, my legs trembled, and yet I wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Habakkuk's feelings haven't changed. He's still eaten up with grief. And you see, there's a danger when we talk and imply that, that faith is some sort of kind of stip up or lift stoicism or, you know, being filled with sorrow is a lack of faith. No, 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 no. That's not what we see in the Bible. As a matter of fact, you can go to the book of Job, and Job 1 says that when Job heard the terrible things that happened to his business, that happened to his family, what did he do? He arose, he tore his garments, he fell on the ground, and all these things. The Bible said he sinned not. But what we see is that he had hope and grief, and they coexist. So first of all, hope and grief coexist, but also hope is a choice. You'll notice in verse 16, Habakkuk says, I'll, I'll wait patiently. Verse 18, he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. This is really, when you look at it, it's actually language of choice. In the New Testament, Paul gives us as a command in the book of Philippians when he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. It's a matter of choice. It is something we do because rejoicing is not a description of the feelings you have. It's a choice to posture our heart to what you know to be true, even when you don't feel like it. Favorite phrase of the internet. I'm not sure who needs to hear this, but... Your feelings don't have brains. You have to tell them how to feel, right? You cannot command yourself to be happy. But what you can do is explain the reasons to yourself why you should be happy. And faith realizes it possesses something in God deeper and better than anything else that life can give and something more secure than anything death can take away. Go to Luke chapter 10. Jesus sends out his disciples. He empowers them. And, and, and they go out and they were game changers. They were pumped. And they, they had even the power over demons. And when they came back to report to Jesus everything that they did, they were so excited. They were so pumped up about what happened. And what does Jesus do? He says this, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
And what Jesus is saying was, hey, this is great, but there are days that you, that you won't feel that way, so rejoice who you are in me and what you have in me. That never changes. The conditions around you will change. The third thing is that hope comes from remembering and repeating. We need to learn a lesson from Habakkuk and, and what he did here is, as he rehearses the exodus. When you look at the scriptures, they really never tell us anything once. It repeats itself over and over again. Psalms 103, bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. And then what does he do? He, does, he reviews the benefits of salvation, just, just like Habakkuk did. And so for you and I, our spiritual health will be directly determined by how often you review the benefits of your salvation and the God behind it all, taking it into account. You know, I don't flatter with myself that any one of my sermon will sustain you for the rest of your life. I don't do that. This life lesson may, may just get you through this week. But you're going to have to and need to repeat and review the scriptures often. And when life saps your strength, you need to force yourself to remember and repeat and to wrestle with God until he reveals himself and his glory to you, just like he did here with Habakkuk. Habakkuk writes in chapter 2, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I'm about to give to this complaint. So he's being honest. Some translation used the phrase watchtower or guard post. It, it, it sort of describes some sort of wooden tower that the prophet built. And it was almost as there. There he would loan, he would watch, and he would wait for God's answer to come. And he did not know how long the Lord would answer or how long he would have to wait. He just knew that having said all that was on his heart, now it was time to wait for God. And we need to stand there with Habakkuk too and say, okay, I'm going to stay here until you are and, and, and what you've done becomes real to me again. Is it quite possible that some of us haven't really met with God in years? In which maybe that's why our faith sags so much. Which then brings me to hope comes from the depths of faith. Habakkuk writes, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Of course, in ancient time and almost in any time, the safest place is on the summit of the hill, Right? Because if you're going to be attacked, you can see where your enemies are coming from all sides. You can see them forming in miles in, in all directions. He talks about the feet of a deer means that you're sure-footed. Again, this is poetry that we're reading. It's, it's like watching a mountain goat in the Rockies, right? They're nimble. They can move across things. When I try to walk across the same mountain, I'm, I'm faced with staggering and slipping. Oh, but when God becomes your strength, when God becomes your joy, that is what you'll be like. All of a sudden, you take on the feet of a deer. You in, you'll have a joy safely above whatever pain, whatever disease, whatever death, whatever disappointment can destroy, and you won't stumble, stumble even in the toughest seasons of life. And we notice specifically that new heights of faith comes after God himself when we have him as our joy, rather than having him give you things that bring joy, he becomes our joy. It increases our faith. And I think what we have to remember is that faith is a choice. It's a choice that we make. And as I look into the world around me, there are many things that remain mysterious, unanswerable. But if there is no God, 
And if he is not good, then nothing at all makes sense. But I've chosen to believe because I must believe. Because I feel I truly have no other choice. And if I sound confident, it's only because I've learned that through my tears and really that my only confidence is in God and God alone. (coughs) Verse 18, Habakkuk says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will be joyful in God my Savior. And this is not a joy from God, but rather this is joy in God. Remember, he's seeing his world. He is confused. He is, you know, shouting out his doubts, his questions. But he also makes a choice and an acknowledgement of his joy in God. And this is when you have faith that dwells in the mountaintops and it's like the feet of the deer. You rest on something solid. And here's the thing. This is where God wants to take you. But the only way it can happen, really, when you think about it, is through trial. There are aspects of God that you can only know when your fields are empty and there's no cattle in your stall. For some of you, maybe it's your marriage is broken or you feel alone. I go back to our passage in John 11 and Lazarus, where we know that Jesus intentionally waited before coming to see Lazarus. And it was on the road where Mary runs up to him and says, look, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus, what does he do? He weeps with Mary. Why? I think the reason is because when you love somebody, you weep with them, even when you know it's temporary. It's it's like when my boys got their shots. But what we see in this passage is that Mary gets a glimpse of Jesus' heart, and not only... Uh, He's not only the God who raises the dead, but he's also the God who weeps when we weep. And she would have never have gotten that glimpse had Lazarus not gotten sick and Jesus not delayed in healing him. And the greatest thing that God can give you and I is the knowledge of who he is and to see the value of his presence in our life and to feel the constant warmth of his compassion towards us. And that will make us come through the trial. And that knowledge, according to Peter in the New Testament, is more valuable than gold. Better than any earthly answer to prayer. So rejoice, he says, when you go through trials and produce it. And finally, hope. Hope in the future leads to prayer in the present. Let's go back to chapter 3, 1 and 2. For some of us growing up in the 80s, this was actually a worship song. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in your awe and deeds. Repeat them in our day, in our time. Make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. It was a vineyard song. I remember singing it. And really, when you take a look at this, Habakkuk closes with the most remarkable prayer. Here he's seen his answer. God is the God of history, and he's moving. God has absolutely everything under control. And and we remember that Habakkuk began this book by saying, Lord, why don't you do something? But now, what does he conclude? He says, Lord, be careful, don't do too much. In wrath, remember mercy. I see you're working, but Lord, remember in the midst of that, you're, you're still a God of mercy. And that's really all he has to say. There's no more philosophy, there's no more theology, there's no more arguing with God. And this prayer is one of the most remarkably beautiful poetic passages in scriptures. You take some time and read it and see how the prophet 
is doing nothing more or less than going back. He's remembering what God has done in the past. And this is what actually convinced Habakkuk that God can be trusted in now and in the future. He rests upon the events that had already occurred, events that can't be questioned or taken away or shaken away, that the great fact that God has already moved throughout human history. And this is where the faith must rest, that we do not live by blind faith. We live with the God who has acted in time, he's acted in space, who has done something, who has indelibly recorded his will in the progress of human events. And what does Habakkuk do? He prays for an outpouring of God's mercy in his day. God, I know you're, in the end, that you're going to turn all this into joy, but I I really want to see my generation included in that joy, and so I'm crying out to you, God, in the midst of my day, just pour out mercy. And so shouldn't we be doing that? And I see God's goodness expressed at the cross. Not only do I have the faith to endure under trial, I yearn to see that goodness break out in our generation. I want to see him do miracles. In the lives of my family, in the lives of my kids and my grandkids, I want to see him do miracles. I want to see him do stuff in our church, in our city, in this generation of souls around the world. Soul, we have even more reason for confidence than Habakkuk. Because ultimately, the Exodus was a picture of what Jesus would do for us. In Luke 9, it records that Jesus, at his transfiguration, Moses and Jesus stood talking about the Exodus. And God the Father said that Moses was actually just dim shadow of Jesus. And what Moses did was only partially. Jesus would now come and accomplish fully. Moses merely risked his life to liberate Israel from bondage. Jesus gave his life to liberate us from evil and sin and death itself. Moses killed a lamb and spread his blood over the doorposts of Israel's houses. But Jesus was himself the lamb who was slain so that his blood would cover our souls. Moses established a system where the priests represented God's people going before God, going into God's presence daily with the names of Israel engraved on precious thorns that they wore over their hearts. And now we know the Bible tells us that Jesus himself is our high priest, standing continually in God's presence on our behalf with our names engraved on his heart. And so it's only in Jesus that we have a righteousness by which we can live by faith. It's only in Jesus that we can rejoice like Habakkuk, whose final words declare that even if God takes everything away, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. It's in the cross. It's in the cross we see God's mercy. We see his heart. And that should inspire us to great hope and confidence today. So where are you? Maybe you're in need of some hope. Remember, Habakkuk struggled with unanswered prayers. This caused him to doubt. And he began to question. He began to question, does God really care? And God answered Habakkuk that he does care, that he answered with an overwhelming yes. 
and he hears our prayers and he will deliver us from our troubles in his time. And ultimately, according to Habakkuk, that he will judge evil in the world. And maybe today you're tuning in and you've been struggling with doubts just like Habakkuk. You know, maybe you're wondering perhaps, what am I supposed to do with all my questions, with all my doubts? And I believe that Habakkuk actually presents a good example for us in this regard. Because too often when we struggle with doubts in our lives, we, we walk away from God, right? We have doubts, we walk away from God. But Habakkuk does the opposite. He comes to God. He comes to God with all of his questions and without his doubts, and he waits. Interesting aspect. He waits, and God answered him. And it may not have been the answer he was looking for, but in fact, God answers actually prompted a whole new set of questions for Habakkuk. And the important thing is that Habakkuk kept coming back to God. And I believe that that is the key when you have questions and you're wrestling with faith. I want to encourage you to bring your doubts, bring your questions to God. Why? Because I believe without question he listens because he notices and because he cares. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this revelation of the great truth that we find running throughout the scriptures. That you are the God of history. That no event takes place but that it's in your program and all things are moving in relationship to your divine kingdom. And what you have said will occur and the record of our past corroborates it and all the twisting and maneuverings of people will not prevent it. So God of life, every act of violence in our world, in our communities, between myself and others, it destroys a part of your creation. Stir in us, stir in our heart a renewed sense of reverence for all of life. Give us the vision to recognize your spirit in every human being, however, however they behave towards us. And help us to lift our eyes to you in the midst of our problems and remember the God of our salvation, the God who is our strength, and thus find the answer right in the midst of our afflictions and our questions. Reveal yourself to us, I pray. But most of all, God, in the words of Habakkuk, remember mercy. And we ask that you'd make us to live this way. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. In ancient times, one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. So, soul sanctuary, here you go. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give us the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice we may glorify God and our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. Now go, go in God's peace to love and live the church. We'll see you next week.